here in 2011. We are just so thankful for all that God has done for us here at Jacob's Well. But most of all, we're thankful for the cross. And uh, we are so glad to be his children and to be able to come together and worship him this morning. Next week, uh, as people fully come back, it seems like people are still out of town, but next week we're going to start a series in the book of Ephesians talking about the church. The first half of Ephesians talks about the blessings of the church, and then the second half talks about the church in action, what happens when the church leaves the building. And so we're very excited, I'm very excited at least, to start talking about that next week and to open up God's word and see what it has to say to us. When I was uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in the same house my whole life, and it was on a street. The street was Bitterfield, and Bitterfield was an extremely steep street. It was it was very steep. We used to ride our big wheels down it. We'd get scars. We'd get scabs. It was fantastic, but um, but it would it would it was a steep incline. And I lived in this two story house, and on the front there was this patio that went the length of the house. And then once you walked off the patio, there was this little garden area that was built up with with some um, railroad ties. And then off to the right of that, to the side of the house, there was like this seven-foot drop-off, okay? Well, one day, my friends and I, we decided, hey, let's build a fort. And so we found some plywood, and we stuck one end on the railroad ties, and the other end we held up with a two-by-four. And then we had some grass clippings, and we said, hey, let's make it camouflage. And so we took grass clippings and sprinkled it all over the top of the plywood so that it would be camouflaged. Well, my friends and I went around, and we were, you know, running through the, through the yard playing guns or something. And all of a sudden, we hear this, ah, and we run. And evidently, my mom had come out to shake out a rug. And she walked down the patio, off into the garden, and then she walked on top of our roof, our patio, because it was so well camouflaged. Um, she was fine, but that plywood was great for its intended purpose. It made a great roof, but it made a horrible floor, right? It made a horrible floor. The thing just collapsed below her. Last week and this week, we're talking about substitute saviors, things in our lives that we run to when we're overwhelmed, when we're frustrated, when we're angry, when we're sad, things we run to to find our identity and joy in life. And what we find out is that when we stand on those substitute saviors, they fall out below us. They're great for their intended purpose. They're good gifts from God for us to enjoy. But when we make those good things ultimate things, they fail us. And we see this happening all the time. I think one way that God reveals to us the substitute saviors in our life is by taking them away. By letting them fall apart underneath us and seeing how we react. And many times when these things fall apart, we're not just disappointed, which is okay, but we're absolutely crushed. Let me give you an example. This afternoon, for those of you who don't know, there's a football game on. If you don't know, you can get up and leave. No. Um, there's a football game, the Packers versus the Bears, right? And if the Packers would so happen to lose, many of us would be very, very sad which is okay, because that's our team, that's who we're cheering for us. But some of us, some people in Green Bay, won't just be sad, they will be crushed. And you know because their spouse usually takes the blunt of it. For a few hours, for a few days, for a few weeks, right? They just have this crabby husband, sometimes wife, 
who's never happy because the Packers lost, right? Their substitute savior had failed them, and now they're crushed. They're destroyed. See, everything that God has made, everything that is good that God has made can be a substitute savior. Take romance, for example. Many of you probably know that person who in high school or college could not stay single for more than a month because they always needed someone to fulfill that void in their life for a savior. And so they dreamed and longed for this person to satisfy those things that only Christ can satisfy. You know, even for me, I know in high school and college, I was so girl crazy thinking, man, if I just marry this girl, then everything will be happy. Everything will be fine. Children are often substitute saviors as well as we live vicariously through them. And if they're not the best athlete or if they're not performing perfectly in class, we get crushed because we're living vicariously through them. Business success is often a substitute savior. Shopping, having to have the latest technology, the coolest toys, the biggest cars, all of these are good, wonderful, amazing gifts from God. But they make horrible saviors, don't they? They make horrible saviors. They always fall out from underneath us and leave us crushed. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to continue the sermon from last week. And what I want to do is to, from the word, prove to your heart and my heart that Christ is a far superior Savior to any other Savior that we might run to when times are difficult. And so if you would, open with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to continue the uh, reading from last week. We're going to start in verse 28, and we'll go through 38. And what we're going to see is that there are two people here who are longing for a Savior. They're longing for a Savior. Their name is Simeon and Anna. So we're in Luke chapter 2. It's page 857 in the Red Bible. Page 857. Luke chapter 2, verse 28 through... Wait, do I have it wrong? Sorry, verse 22 through 38. Read along with me if you would. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's baby Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. I love Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, 
the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer, night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not just another book, but it is the very word of God. That it is breathed out by you for our benefit, for our joy, for our instruction. God, we pray today as we sit and listen to your word that we would indeed know that you are a superior Savior. That we indeed would flee from these substitute saviors and flee to the one true, all-satisfying Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just to review from last week, we started talking about what kind of Savior is Jesus? I mean, if he is a superior Savior, why is he a superior Savior? What makes him so much better than all these other substitute Saviors available to us? And we saw that Jesus is a Jewish Savior, which is important because Jesus fulfills the entire law on our behalf. He is a perfectly righteous person, and it is exchanged to us at the cross. Jesus is a consoling Savior, meaning that he is comforting and he is encouraging both in life and in death. You see here, Simeon says, I can now depart in peace. Jesus is a consoling Savior. Jesus is the Lord's anointed Savior. He is the only one appointed by God to be the Savior of the world. And so we're going to continue and we're going to see that Jesus is also a universal Savior. Simeon starts in verse 30, and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation. This whole passage really revolves around this one verse. It all kind of develops from there or points back to it. Simeon says, My eyes have seen your salvation. What he's saying is that my eyes have seen the, the way, the path, that you are going to secure salvation. And it is through this baby, Jesus, that you are going to do it. He goes on in verse 31. Your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This would have been a mind-blowing statement in the time that it was giving. That Jesus had come not just to be the Savior of the Jews, of the Israelites, but he is for the Gentiles. The word Gentile in Greek is ethnos, which we get ethnicity. And so they're saying that Jesus for, for every nation, not just for the Jews, See, through the Old Testament, God worked primarily through the Israelites, and he spoke in and through the Israelites, and it was to the Israelites, to the Jews, to Jerusalem, that God had promised a Savior. But now, Simeon is proclaiming, this Savior is not just for you, it is for the whole world. You as a nation have been blessed to be a blessing, to share this Savior with everyone that you can find. Revelation 5.9 puts it this way, in heaven, it says, and they sang a new song. You, being Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus Christ came, not just for Jews, 
but for Gentiles, for every nation. And I am so thankful because I think most of you, like me, are not Jewish. Most of you, like me, are Gentiles. And Christ came for us. And we are blessed as a church so that we could be a blessing to the nations. You know, it's kind of like in elementary school when it's your birthday, you bring cupcakes, right? You don't just bring one cupcake, eat it, and taunt all the other kids, right? Although that would probably be fun. But you bring a whole host of cupcakes and you share it with everyone, right? You're blessed to be a blessing. You're not just given this cupcake to keep to yourself. You're, you're supposed to spread it and share it with everyone around you. And for some reason, you know, it says here that for glory to your people, Israel, it's your day, that birthday. It's your day. You get the glory, not in a bad way, but you get the center of attention because it's your birthday. But you are blessed to be a blessing to others. That's what God says about the church. I have blessed you with the Savior, but not just to keep him to yourself. I have blessed you to be a blessing to the nations because Jesus is a universal Savior. And so if we believe that this is true, if we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the entire world, would we not spare any expense to make sure that every tribe, tongue, and nation hears about this Savior? That we would be able to go to them, that we'd be able to help them expose their substitute saviors and turn to the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is a universal Savior. We also see, and this is really fascinating, that Jesus is a polarizing Savior. He's a polarizing Savior, meaning that you either love him or you hate him. There's no indifference to Jesus. You see, Simeon comes and he proclaims with joy that Jesus is the Savior of all nations, that he is good news for all nations. But in the same breath, led by the Holy Spirit, he says, while Jesus is good news for all nations, Jesus is not necessarily good news for all people. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall in rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. You know, when Jesus came in his earthly ministry, he was extremely popular and extremely hated. People mocked him. They ridiculed him. They were trying, constantly trying to trick him, get him into jail, trying to kill him, trying to get rid of him. He was a sign that was opposed. And the reason why Jesus was a sign to be opposed is because Jesus represented something that is offensive to our human nature. Jesus represented the fact that we actually need a Savior. That we actually are sinful people who deserve hell. That's not a popular topic today. You don't talk about this at parties because it is something that we oppose drastically. We want to think that we can do it ourselves, that we can be our own saviors, that on our best days, God is happy with us because of what a good person we are. But the presence of Jesus tells us that that is false, that we do indeed need a savior because we cannot earn our salvation with God. And so it allows us to get off this performance treadmill and trust in Christ, our Savior, who was sent for us. And the reason why Jesus is so opposed is not because he was a bad guy, but the reason why he was so opposed was because he revealed people's hearts. Verse 35 actually says this. It says, so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. 
You see, Jesus revealed people's hearts. And it was ugly. People were self-righteous. They were angry. They were bitter. They were frustrated. They were proud, not in a good way. And Jesus revealed that. And people got angry because he revealed their hearts. You know, it's interesting how Jesus is still a sign that is very much opposed, even today's culture. Um, do you know where I hear the name Jesus Christ the most? Where, you're laughing. <laughs> Maybe you do. It, it's not a church. It's not a church, right? We do say the name Jesus Christ a lot. We love him. It's not, you know, in Bible study, it's not even the Bible. The time that I hear Jesus Christ the most is at basketball. And it's not because someone made a shot and they're praising the Lord, like, praise you, Jesus Christ, right? It's not that. It's they miss a shot or I miss a shot, right? And they say, oh, Jesus Christ, man, right? They never say, oh, Buddha, right? Or, oh, Muhammad, right? Like, Jesus is the one that they're opposed to. We're still opposed to an authority savior in our life. It should come to no surprise to us. Simeon is saying it right here, that throughout generations, Jesus will stand as a sign that is opposed. I have a friend, we'll call him Joe. Joe's in college, and Joe loves Jesus. He's a Christian. But his friends not only dislike Jesus, they hate the fact that Joe worships Jesus. And they're constantly trying to convince him to give up. Why? Why is he such an opposed figure? It's because he is telling people that they are sinners in need of a Savior. It really is amazing how much Jesus is opposed without the grace and mercy of God. This passage continues, and it tells us that for those who oppose Jesus, they are appointed to fall, that they would be cast into hell forever. But for those who trust in Jesus as their Savior, they are appointed for rising, that they will be raised up with Christ to new life, and they will be with him forever and ever in eternity. Jesus is an extremely polarizing Savior. As I was uh, preparing this message, I was thinking, what is something that is really polarizing? And I didn't want to pick politics. And so I'm like, what else is really polarizing? And uh, I was like, you know what's really polarizing? Diet Coke. Diet Coke is very polarizing. In, in my experience, either you love it or you hate it, right? We went over to the Dow's for dinner um, a few weeks ago, and they said, hey, you want something to drink? We have Diet Coke, milk, water, orange juice. I'm like, anything but Diet Coke. I dislike Diet Coke. And they're like, I don't know if we can be friends if you don't like Diet Coke, right? I mean, it's, it's something where it's like, for some people, you're just absolutely addicted to it. For other people like me, I'd rather lick the sidewalk because it tastes horrible. I don't even understand how people like it, right? It's something that creates, that, that is just absolutely polarizing, at least in my experience. But see, whether you like or dislike Diet Coke really doesn't have many consequences, other than you probably can't be the Dallas friends, but it, it doesn't have many consequences, right? But if you love or hate Jesus, it has eternal consequences. It's either for your rising if you love him or for your falling if you hate him. And so Jesus is this extremely polarizing Savior. He is history's watershed, history's dividing line, history's razor. And so indifference to Jesus is impossible. If you're indifferent, you hate him because you don't acknowledge him as Savior. And so you either love him or you hate him. And eternity depends on it. And so Jesus is 
a polarizing Savior. Finally, we see that Jesus is a redemptive Savior. After Simeon is done praising God, saying, my eyes have seen thy salvation, along comes this woman named Anna. And Anna often gets overlooked, but Anna is a godly, amazing woman. She had been widowed for something like 70 years, and she was constantly in the temple worshiping God. She wasn't bitter. She worshiped God. She was thanking God. She was praying to God. And she was filled with the Holy Spirit. We learn that she's a prophetess, which we're not exactly sure what that meant, but at least we know that she's a spokeswoman for God. And so you see here in this passage, what would this awesome, godly woman think about Jesus? Verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, Anna began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so Anna, this prophetess, comes into the temple. She sees baby Jesus. And the first thing she does is she thanks God, but then she spreads the word that redemption has arrived that the Savior is here. You know, Jerusalem, the people of Israel, the humble-hearted people who follow God, were waiting for this Savior. We're waiting for redemption for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. You can actually see this in their songbook, in the hymns. In Psalm 130, you can hear of how people longed for a Savior. Psalm 135 says this, I wait for the Lord. Remember, they are singing this song. They probably have it memorized. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. So you can imagine a guard standing guard on a wall for a city, and it's dark, and there's predators, and there's enemies. And he waits for the morning to illumine the darkness. And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. And this is where Anna and Simeon were. They were waiting for the dawn. They're waiting for the Savior, for the redemption of Israel. This goes on in Psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from what? He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The people longed for redemption. They longed for a Savior. And he had finally arrived. Redemption was here. This past week, I uh, was on vacation and we got this TV. It's not new to us, but it, or it's new to us, not new. We bought Craigslist and we got it home. This guy delivered it. We got it home. We discovered, man, this thing's way too big for our sunroom. And so we thought the right thing to do would be to build it a home in the basement, right? So we said, okay, we're going to refinish our basement to fit this TV down there, and it will be wonderful. And so we, we ended up, you know, we, we, we went to Craigslist, so we went not spend as much money, and then we ended up finishing our basement. But it's amazing how many times when you're working on a project— you have to run to Menards. You all probably know what I'm talking about. I mean, seriously, like you're going three times. By the end of the day, they know you by name, right? They're offering you cookies because it's like you're just going back and back to buy supplies, right? You buy carpet, and then you need a carpet knife. You buy, uh, you buy drywall, but then you need the drywall screws. You need the, the mud and the tape and the knives and all that stuff, right? You buy even the light sockets, and you have to go back to buy the actual lights because they're not included in the box, right? And it's amazing all these expenses that just add up over time, right? It's expensive. 
I mean, to do that, it's expensive just to live life, to do anything. And what redemption is, is redemption is actually a purchase being made. If you look at the definition of redemption, redemption is to repurchase of captured goods or prisoners, the act of procuring or securing the deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors by the payment of an equivalent ransom. You know, it's interesting, in the book of Leviticus, it talks about redeeming a family member who has been sold into slavery. So someone who is very poor, they sell themselves into slavery, but then you can redeem them by purchasing them out of slavery and into freedom with an equivalent ransom. What an interesting phrase. You know, it's very interesting because the Bible tells us, and we've kind of been talking about it a lot today, but that the wages of sin is death. Physical death, but also spiritual death. Separation from God. That's the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. But do you know what the wages of life are? The wages of life are death. That's the equivalent ransom. But it's not your death. And it's not my death. It's the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And this is the ransom that was paid. You see, redemption comes at a great cost. Hebrews 9.12 puts it this way, Christ entered once for all into the holy place, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus, as the Redeemer, was not bringing the ransom. Jesus was the ransom for you and for me, that we no longer have to worship these substitute saviors that fail us, but that we can once again worship the true savior and be in relationship with the God of the universe. I uh, listened to sports talk radio a lot this past week because of the little game this afternoon. And um, it's funny because I hear this phrase come up over and over again on Sports Talk Radio where they feel extremely sad for anyone that is a sports fan in Cleveland, Ohio. Because evidently Cleveland just has horrible teams. I mean, you have the Indians, you have the Cavs, you have the Browns, right? I mean, they, they, they just don't have a whole lot to cheer for. Well, a few years ago, there was a glimmer of hope. There was this guy born and raised in Cleveland named LeBron James. Many of you probably know who he is. He's an amazing basketball player. And when LeBron started to play with Cleveland, there was a Facebook page started up. And the Facebook page was entitled, LeBron is Cleveland's Savior. LeBron is Cleveland's Savior. And for years, they had put all their hope and expectations on LeBron to bring them a championship. It never happened. And as many of you know, LeBron this year decided to move and start playing in Miami. I'm guessing that Facebook page isn't very popular anymore. But there's a, there's a research out there. It's called the uh, Q's Report. Q, score, that's what it is. And it rates the most hated athletes in America. And LeBron is number six behind Michael Vick, Tiger Woods, Terrell Owens, Chad Ochocinco, and Kobe Bryant. And it's amazing when you look at this list and you wonder why would these people be so hated? And all of them have something in common. All of them are amazing 
athletes, spectacular athletes. And I think what happens is people put them up on a pedestal. They make them their substitute saviors. Their hopes and their dreams are dependent on them. And when the, when the floor falls out, when they fail them, they hate them. You see, all those guys, they're amazing athletes, aren't they? But they're horrible saviors. They're horrible saviors. Romance, food, children, shopping, friends, intellect, sports. These are all really good gifts from God. But they make horrible saviors. Horrible saviors. But there is another savior, the one that Anna and Simeon were delighted over. Jesus who promises that if you follow him as your savior, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, the, the, the floors will never fall out from underneath you. Jesus is a superior savior because he is the Jewish savior, the anointed savior, the consoling savior, the universal savior, the polarizing savior, and he is the redeeming savior. Jesus is the supreme savior. He is the sufficient savior. Jesus is the all-satisfying Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you did indeed come to save us, Lord. And we confess in our hearts that many times we want to rebel against you, and yet you are still faithful to us. You still love us. You still came and died for us, God. Lord, we are, we are weak people, and I pray that as we are tempted every day to turn to substitute saviors, that we would indeed turn to the one true savior, the one who never fails us, who will never let us go, who will always love us and care for us, the one who is supreme. We pray this week that you would indeed be supreme in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.